0: Impaired self-development, chronic levels of anxiety, and chronic compulsive caretaking behavior, those are the things that need to be corrected in the treatment.
1: Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome back to Therapist Uncensored. For the first episode of 2019, we are proud to introduce you to a very special guest. Some would say that he's lived five lifetimes in a one in the amount of work that he's achieved. Our guest is Dr. Daniel Brown. Now Dr. Brown has served on the faculty of Harvard medical school for almost 40 years. He's written 24 books on everything from meditation to attachment disturbances. Uh, He's fluent in Tibetan and Sanskrit. In fact, he's also trained and taught with top Tibetan lamas for over 50 years, including lineage holders of some of the great schools of Buddhism. And of particular interest to our listeners, if that's not enough, he's also handled over 200 child abuse cases as an expert witness and helped the International War Crimes Tribune establish a standard of evidence for war atrocities. So uh, needless to say, he has a wealth of knowledge to bring to our listeners, and we are really excited to have him on the show. In fact, one of his latest book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults Treatment for Comprehensive Repair, is award-winning. And for those of you familiar with the podcast, you're going to recognize this book. We were so excited by it that we interviewed his co-author, Dr. David Elliott, in episode 31. Great interview. And we even brought Dr. Elliott into Austin, Texas for a live professional conference last spring. That's how much we believe in their work. Related to the treatment of attachment issues. Before I turn it over to Sue, we have great news. Many of you have expressed desire to get more in-depth content and we believe we found a way to both provide opportunities for deeper content, more access to us, as well as to support our ability to provide fresh content to you all and as well to internationally to those who might not otherwise have access to such a podcast So we would really appreciate if you'd show us support by becoming a Patreon member, go to patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored and sign up. We would really appreciate it. You could go there and see more details and that'll be in our show notes. And also actually our guest today is providing an opportunity for training Dr. Brown has launched an online program called Attachment Project. It's a comprehensive training opportunity. So if you enjoy the podcast, which we're sure you will, and if you're interested, you may want to check it out. You can learn more about attachment and therapists can earn eight hours of CEUs. So we'll have the link in our show notes as well. By the way, they generously offered our listeners a 10% discount. So just use the code uncensored when you sign up. All right, let's turn to today's show. Uh, Sue was able to get Dr. Brown to talk about what he's learned from his unique experience and expertise in trauma and how he's incorporated all of his research and training and meditation practice into the three pillars protocol on attachment. So, by the way, this episode is quite dense with information So get your notepads out. In fact, the first half of the interview is quite in depth. So if it feels too detailed, some of you are going to love that level of detail. Some of you, it may be too much. Feel free to skip to about the halfway point where he speaks more generally about attachment, trauma, and treatment. So, all right, let me turn it over to Sue.
2: So welcome, Dan Brown. I am so excited to be able to get you on the show. I know our audience is going to be very interested in what you have to say. So welcome to the show. We are so happy to have you.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
2: So many of our audience, not everybody, of course, but is familiar with your work in particular related to your incredible book that you did with David Elliott, Attachment Disturbances in Adults, Comprehensive Treatment and Repair. So I know people are going to be really excited to hear from you and there's so many things we could talk about you are expert in so many areas but i think for this show we were going to dive into the topic of attachment and trauma so give us an idea of your recent work and, and what you would like people to know
0: well there are three points that i think are important to make the first has to do with what's called complex trauma and in my view from the research that we've done complex trauma is not complex trauma it's really Disorganized attachment aggravated by later childhood physical or and/or sexual abuse
2: so complex trauma you know just for those listening you know you have the big T trauma which is an event that happens and complex trauma is typically been seen as a cumulative trauma and has been distinguished from you know being in a car accident or you know a discrete event.
0: Well, there are two issues here, what the profile of complex trauma is, and and it usually is somebody who has post-traumatic stress, maybe a dissociative condition, maybe an anxiety disorder, a somatoform disorder. Usually, it means that they have a mixed personality disorder or borderline personality disorder and multiple addictive behaviors. So, Complex trauma from a clinical perspective means that the given individual has eight or nine major comorbid diagnoses, not just post-traumatic stress. The second point has to do with what's the etiology or cause of that, and in the literature it was thought that the cause of that was one of two things, either repeated or cumulative traumatization on the one hand, or extreme traumatization. So, for a while, there was a term called DESNOS, disorders of extreme stress, in the idea that people who had these eight or nine comorbid diagnoses, not just post-traumatic stress, were victims of disorders of extreme stress or cumulative trauma. But our own research and some other studies also seem to suggest that it's not the cumulative effects of traumatization, traumatic acts per se, that causes this complex trauma profile it's really early disrupted attachment, mostly disorganized attachment aggravated by later traumatization. It was a study that we did it it was uh, the results were sort of discovered serendipitously, but I do a lot of expert witness cases uh, around child abuse and
2: yes that's actually really uh, gives you such an interesting perspective and I had heard that. And I am interested to even hear about the research and kind of how you're approaching trauma, who you are, how you became interested in trauma as well.
0: Well, I got interested in trauma really in 1978 when I was teaching three-day clinical hypnosis courses. And a social worker whose name was Sarah Haley took the course, and she was one of the founders of the Society for Traumatic Stress. And I didn't know much about trauma. But she took the course and got excited about hypnosis, and we made a trade She taught me a lot about trauma in the early days, and I taught her hypnosis, and then she gave me a number of cases to treat, and that was during the Vietnam era war, and the first cases of trauma that I treated were kids who were in Operation Phoenix. They were trained to be little killing machines and kill an entire village of women, children, and uh, men at night, and that was my trial-by-fire exposure to treating victims of extreme trauma, and Sarah eventually died of breast cancer, but she was one of the founders of the trauma field, one of the original visionaries who were treating Vietnam vets in an era that no one else did, so I promised Sarah before she died that I would do whatever I could to continue the trauma field and put it on the map. And I've tried to honor that commitment over the years.
2: Oh, absolutely. That is an incredible story, actually. And then two other just quick background points before we get back to the specifics on trauma is you mentioned being an expert witness, and you've had an interesting perspective from that.
0: I've been involved in over 200 cases. I've done 70 priest abuse cases against the Catholic Church. I've worked as a consultant for the prosecutors at the International War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague over a 12-year period and helped them set up a standard of evidence for what would be reasonable and reliable testimony from victims of extreme war atrocities. I'm happy to say that that standard has been challenged five times, never successfully on appeal, and based on that standard of reliable evidence, we have a 93% conviction rate in the tribunal.
2: Wow, that is really incredible. And then that ties into, I think, the research that you were referring to. So can you just give us a quick thumbnail of that?
0: Well, uh, just before Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans came, I had an attorney call me about some adults who had recovered memories of being abused in a Catholic orphanage in the 1950s. And they had started to recover memories, and I ended up doing forensic testing on about maybe 30 adults. And since this is an adversarial system, when I do forensic testing, I try and do things really carefully. I give them a minimum of two full days of testing, 16 to 20 hours of face-to-face testing. So I give them a number of paper and pencil personal personality tests and clinical inventories, a variety of structured interviews, psychophysiological testing, the adult attachment inventory, and a number of other things. So they get pretty thorough testing. And we had a unique uh, population because all of these kids were abused in a Catholic orphanage called Madonna-Manna by the priests when they were in latency, age years, and there are about 30 victims that I tested. And the unique data population was they were all abused by the same abusers in the same amount of, in the same time frame. But the difference was attachment status. So when I gave them the adult attachment inventory, about half of the adult survivors of that abuse were securely attached, and the other half were insecurely attached. And when we looked at the data, we found that The ones who were securely attached, who were abused, had post-traumatic stress and anxiety conditions, and some of them had somatoform symptoms. None of them had a personality disorder. None of them had a major dissociative disorder, and none of them had multiple addictive behaviors. But the group who had insecure attachment, which was about half the group, most of them had disorganized insecure attachment and all of them had either a mixed or borderline personality disorder diagnosis, all of them had major dissociative disorder, and all of them had multiple addictive behaviors. So the study clearly showed that what we have called complex trauma isn't really complex trauma, that what the data suggested was that People who have disorganized attachment, it affects all developmental lines. It affects uh, relational development, it affects self-development, and it affects emotional development. And the long-term cumulative effects of that disorganized attachment is going to be 20, 30 years ago, the manifestation of that as a major personality disorder, either a mixed or borderline personality disorder, a propensity towards dissociative behaviors and disorders, and because of the inability to regulate emotional states, the development of multiple addictive behaviors. So it seemed clear to us that complex trauma wasn't complex trauma. It was really a disorganized attachment or attachment disruption aggravated by um, physical or sexual abuse in later childhood. We then doubled our sample size by taking people who had been abused not at that orphanage by other priests in different environments and we didn't find a difference in the two populations So that it seemed clear, again, that the ones who had secure attachment, it protected them from the more severe effects of traumatization. And the ones that had insecure attachment, mostly disorganized attachment, they were more vulnerable to the severe effects of traumatization in later childhood.
2: That makes so much sense. And I know that you're going to, when we get to it, talk about what the clinical implications of that are and how the treatment would, you know, depending on how you're seeing what the etiology is, will change the treatment.
0: The clinical implications are profound.
2: Yes, absolutely. But just a quick question. I know many people wonder this when there's a group of people that come forward and you have such a unique perspective. Do you feel like when there is an outcry, like I'm also thinking about the U.S. gymnastics team, is it very common for people to come forward that weren't abused that are claiming abuse? It's
0: very uncommon. The statistics across studies seem to be that people who make False abuse claims are under 5% of individuals who come forth. There's false memory advocates who say that happens quite frequently, but the data doesn't suggest that.
2: that. Well, that makes sense, because there would be something else happening anyway for people to come forward and be fabricating something like that.
0: Well, the false memory advocates also say there's no such thing as recovered memories, and there's no such things for dissociative amnesia. But that debate went on for... 20 years I've been involved in that in the courts, but uh, there are two pieces of data that refute the false memory claim. One is that there are, of, to date, 111 studies on forgetting childhood sexual abuse, many of them peer-reviewed studies. And across all of those studies, there are some percentage of people, not a lot, but some percentage of people who will completely forget the abuse and then later recover the memory of it. Second, there are a number of neurocircuitry studies now from neuroscience, mostly coming out of Europe, not in the U.S., mostly out of Germany, that have pinned down the neurocircuitry studies, circuit changes specifically for dissociative amnesia. When we remember an emotional event... There are two neural circuits that are involved the right temporal parietal system, which is autobiographical memory, and the medial prefrontal cortex, which is a sense of self, Dan in my case, or Susanness in your case. And when we activate an emotional memory for an important event in our life, we activate both of those circuits. We put the emotional memory back online and we remember it as uh, happening to us in terms of it happening to Dan or happening to Susan. But the studies show that when people who have dissociative amnesia, one or both of those circuits goes offline. So if both of those circuits goes offline, they remember nothing. Or if the medial prefrontal cortex goes offline, but not the temporal parietal system, then they have a strong emotional memory, but they can't say that it happened to me. There's no sense of self to say that it happened as an event in my life. Or the opposite happens. They evoke the medial prefrontal cortex, but not the temporal parietal system. And they say that I have a general sense of something happening, but I can't pin down what it is. So the studies on neurocircuitry have really resolved this debate for most people who listen to the scientific data, that there is a strong neuroscientific basis for dissociative amnesia, and it's put to rest some of these arguments in the court.
2: Yes. And I'm thinking also about one of the effects of those, that debate was therapists becoming much more cautious about, you know, being the hippocampus in a sense of mediating the story and putting the story together for the patient. Well,
0: the one issue around false memories that's clear is that if you supply lots of information that isn't part of the interviewee's field of experience, then you are suggesting things. And uh, some people are vulnerable to that, but we also have a pretty good uh, standardized assessment of who is memory suggestibility called the Good Johnson Suggestibility Scale, and we can tell what in given individual is more vulnerable to that or not? It's not a general phenomenon that if you suggest false information that people pick it up. Most people don't. And there are some studies that show that people who are traumatized are mistrustful in relationships, and therefore they're significantly less suggestible, not more suggestible, and they're not so vulnerable to picking up false information.
2: Oh, that, that's really so <laughs> important, and it's fascinating. I'm so interested And just one other quick question with that, then. So the suggestibility is separate from disassociation. Is that right? Is that what you're saying?
0: Well, there's different kinds of suggestibility, but I'm talking about something quite specific. It's called memory suggestibility. There's a standardized measure for that called the Good Johnson Suggestibility Scale, and you can tell what given individual is actually memory suggestible under what conditions. And uh, it turns out to be uh, under 5% of individuals are unduly memory suggestible. That's not a very high... Percentage, but most of the false memory people don't look at the good old psychology of individual differences. Right. I remember doing a case of priest abuse in uh, Seattle, and there were six clients, and I wanted to give them the Good Johnson suggestibility scale, and the lawyer was said, "Well, what if the results are not good?" And I said, "Then don't worry, it's not going to happen that way." And we gave all six of them the Good Johnson suggestibility scale, and. Five of them came out, two standard deviations below the mean in suggestibility, and one came out in the normal range. So that put the issue to rest. It wasn't speculative anymore.
2: Oh, that's really, that is incredible. And you're right, because part of what goes with trauma is vigilance. And And mistrust. And mistrust, yes.
0: So they're not so suggestible.
2: Yes, yes. So complex trauma, then what you're saying, is as a point, rather than seeing it as a mix of these various disorders... Your data suggests that it is a disorganized attachment or some sort of attachment disturbance that is aggravated by some significant abuse in childhood.
0: Later childhood, correct.
2: In later childhood. Okay. So that's really important. So is there anything more you want to say about that before we talk about the treatment and what the implications of these findings are?
0: Well, we also found that some people on the adult attachment interview had secure attachment, but they had secure attachment with dismissing features or secure attachment with anxious, preoccupied features. And the ones that had secure attachment with dismissing features they were the ones that were more vulnerable uh, to priest abuse because they was something they didn't quite get growing up and they were looking for a healthy father figure and a good pedophile priest would exploit that by refathering them and uh, in exchange for sexual favors and so we began to understand the vulnerable victim from that point of view
2: That makes so much sense because there's something missing and there's also not the tracking like feeling creepy or feeling uncomfortable.
0: If you're a pedophile and you have a sexual addiction, it means you're going to do it many times and you have to groom vulnerable targets. uh, And uh, a smart pedophile will groom Kids who are vulnerable, and therefore, they're less likely to disclose that the, the abuse is happening because they're being reparented in some way or another. And we can identify the profile of the child who's most vulnerable, and it's somebody who has either extremely disorganized attachment or has healthy attachment with dismissing features, and those are the ones that pedophiles are going to pick out.
2: More so than just someone who is more on the avoidant, dismissive side of insecure attachment? Correct. Well, that is really interesting. So secure attachment with dismissing features is more vulnerable. I mean, disorganization certainly makes sense, but is more vulnerable than somebody who has the insecure category. Just, can you say more about that?
0: That after they get damaged by the abuse, then they appear more dismissing, then it aggravates the dismissing features. So they have a harder time connecting. So now you've got the cumulative effect of the original dismissing attachment. And secondly, it's aggravation by the abuse itself.
2: What does the cat, you know, somebody who's more robustly falls in the dismissing category, how is that protective or how, how would that make someone less likely than someone secure with dismissing features?
0: Because they don't connect, so they avoid...
2: St- As just about to go there, right, that they're... They
0: just avoid situations. They're
2: just, right, and they're not in touch with their own longing and yearning, so they would be less vulnerable.
0: That's right. They've deactivated the attachment system and that longing.
2: Oh, wow, that is really fascinating.
0: So the field has really evolved, and we can make these much more subtle distinctions these days.
2: Wow. I'm just absorbing. This, that makes so much sense. And then, of course, that if you already have dismissing features, and then you have this trauma related to your longing and yearning, then you're going to aggravate, you're going to move further on that continuum and, and shut down, and it will aggravate the dismissing features. You, you
0: got it. That's correct.
2: That is so painful. What else? Anything else related to the data that you want to share? Because that's fascinating.
0: Well, from a clinical point of view, this has profound implications for treatment because if you have somebody who has disorganized attachment and they have multiple diagnoses like a personality disorder diagnosis and a major dissociative disorder diagnosis and PTSD and multiple addictions, that the traditional phase-oriented trauma treatment model that evolved in the 1980s and 1990s doesn't work for that given individual. Uh, If you try and process the trauma, they get more disorganized or they lose coherence of mind. I had, as an expert witness in the 1990s and 2000s, did many cases of malpractice against uh, trauma clinicians where they were being sued by false memory-oriented therapists for allegedly implanting false memories. And sometimes I had to read 10 crates of records uh, from several hospitalizations and many therapists over a 10-year span. And we found that both sides were wrong. The false memory people were accusing the therapists of being overzealous in implanting in false memories, and most of the therapists were not doing that at all. They were simply processing trauma memories that had already occurred in the patient. On the other hand, the phase-oriented trauma models were making the patient more disorganized because... Right,
2: they didn't have a foundation to stand to be able to process the information. So
0: the, the, both sides were wrong because the phase-oriented trauma model, phase-oriented trauma treatment, that means three things. that You stabilize the individual first, you process the memories and the representations around trauma second, and then thirdly, you get them back on the right developmental track. That model doesn't seem to be effective for people with complex trauma. But what we found is if we fundamentally change the treatment to treating disorganized attachment, then later in the treatment, sometimes you had to process the trauma and most of the times you didn't. But we were finding that people with eight or nine diagnoses, a, a complex trauma patient, were getting better completely within two or three years without any trauma processing or if the trauma processing happened late in treatment, there was rather simple, straightforward cognitive behavioral exposure treatment. It, but it wasn't this complex situation that was getting them to be more disorganized or having less coherence of mind. So we completely reoriented our treatment towards treating the disorganized attachment and it was working.
2: So that, again, that makes so much sense. I'm going to re-say it and to make sure that I'm understanding it and also so that people can hear it again because it's actually really, really important what you're saying. And so here's my association to it is often when someone has trauma, they come in and that's the content that they put forward. So as someone who's wanting to provide help, if, if you don't know, if you don't have this model in mind, then carefully working on the trauma would be naturally what you would be elicited to do by the patient.
0: Correct. Or the therapist.
2: Or the therapist. That's right. Right. That they have their technique and they're going to carefully... The person's
0: reporting trauma. They're going to process the trauma. Gonna, they're going to process
2: the trauma in the way that they've been trained. But your point and your data and your experience has been that to treat the attachment itself is treating the trauma, but you don't go into the content of the trauma, you go into, and then can you say a little more when you say treat the attachment, not the, tr- you know, not don't go straight for the trauma. What does that look like? How is that different?
0: So if somebody has disorganized attachment, what it means is uh, it's an impossible dilemma for the child. That means the source of Attachment is also the source of fear. That means that the parent was uh, overstimulating, overaggressive, over seductive, in the child's face, uh, looming too much, uh, one way or the other overstimulating the child, and uh, the child who would be upset would normally go to a parent as a source of some comfort or soothing, but The source of comfort or soothing is the source of what's causing the terror in the first place. So it's an impossible dilemma for the child. So when we were working out our treatment for attachment disorders, which we've evolved over 20 years, we came up with three main approaches. The first was called ideal parent figures that we have the adult who has insecure attachment imagine that they grew up in a family different from the family of origin with a set of parents ideally suited to their nature and uh, by uh, imagination creates new possibilities so by having them imagine getting all the right things over and over again they develop a positive stable new internal working model for attachment and the disorganized or inconsistent models internal working models for attachment become irrelevant they stop operating out of them and they operate out of this new positive model and what we found is that it has a profound organizing effect on state of mind. So if you measure coherence of mind, it significantly changes in the course of the treatment once they develop a stable, positive internal representation for healthy, secure attachment.
2: I have been using this model. And again, I mentioned David Elliott and we've been working with him and I've been using it with my patients. And, and so I'm just reemphasizing what Dan is saying. Of how powerful that this one intervention is, and that it has been empirically validated. You know that you've got some studies. I think Carol George, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, with some of her colleagues, have done some empirical research validating the usefulness of that. And we often, as therapists, don't have that kind of data to know that what we're doing actually works. So what Dan is talking about right now, with this, particularly with this intervention of the ideal parent. There's actual data supporting it, so that's incredibly
0: well. We got a we did a pilot study for our book, and we got a treatment effect size of six point two. That's uh, off the charts. Uh, most good treatments treatment effect size that's for an effective treatment is in the point eight range. So, what we found is that all the subjects in this study got better. They no longer had insecure attachment. They met the criterion for earned secure attachment. They had high coherence of mind, and they had developed good metacognitive reflective capacity in the course of the treatment.
2: That is incredible. And how long was that treatment for that study?
0: About two years. About two years. On the average. Now we've tripled our sample size, and we have a control group, and we're trying to finish up a major outcome study uh, to validate this treatment.
2: That's incredible. And that was a different study than the Carol George study, I believe. Is that right? Yes. 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 So... Great. And so there were the three pillars. So one was the ideal parent figure. And I think you're going to go on and talk about the other two as well.
0: The second is that we discovered that metacognition was important, the capacity to reflect on your own state of mind and that I learned this from Howard Steele when he was at Tavistock, that he said that when they developed the reflective function scale, which measures reflective or metacognitive capacity on a minus one to positive nine scale, that they never found a patient at Tavistock with a personality or dissociative disorder diagnosis that ever scored above three on this scale. So they developed a whole new treatment to enhance metacognition, which was called mentalization-based treatment. And the outcome studies with borderlines and people with major dissociative disorders is some of the most impressive outcome data that we have for these diagnoses. So it works.
2: And mentalization treatment, just so that people can understand, what does that, when you're treating metacognition or, or using mentalization... Then
0: you teach patients to reflect on their own state of mind, the trouble with the Tavistock approach, although it's very... Effective is that they're using pre-formal types of metacognition, and there's a whole body of research on adult types of metacognition. Piaget's model for intelligence only went up to adolescence, and if we take the view that uh, intellectual development stops in adolescence, we'd be in trouble as a species. But. Some people, not a lot, have looked at adult post-formal cognitive development, and there are seven stages of post-formal cognitive development, and each one of those has different types of metacognition. and I'm of the view strongly that those types of adult metacognitive skills uh, have profound implications for mental health, and we introduce a whole range of those to our personality disordered and dissociative disordered patients, and it it works.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great. The
0: third pillar of treatment is uh, fostering collaborative behavior. I learned this from Giovanni Liotti in Rome, who unfortunately died this year. He had a big influence on our treatment. I went over to Rome to study with him, and I brought him to Harvard on several occasions to talk so I could learn from him. He introduced me to the work of the social anthropologist Michael Tomasello, who had done 10 years of research with primates. And apes and chimpanzees will engage in collaborative behavior in small small ways, mostly getting food, but they won't share it very well. But what's unique in the evolutionary scheme is that humans will collaborate on lots of uh, abstract projects. Uh, Only humans have this kind of collaborative behavior. And then they found that early childhood attachment affects collaborative behavior, that secure kids have collaborative behavior. So kids who have secure attachment, they are sensitive to other kids in the day school who are unhappy, and they share their toys easily. But kids who have insecure attachment, they take that naturally collaborative behavior offline, and they're not collaborative. So they have to be retaught to put the collaborative behavior back online. So kids who grow up with dismissing attachment and they deactivate the attachment system, they don't look at you when they talk to you. They turn their eyes away and you have to teach them just to change their nonverbal behavior so that they seem like they're living in an interpersonal world. And People who grow up with anxious, preoccupied attachment can't take turns in their conversations with people. So they're always interrupting, and they go on and on and on and don't let you get a word in edgewise. So you have to teach them basic rules of engagement and discourse as part of the treatment. Otherwise, we're not doing them any favors. They never learned it.
2: Right. They're unconsciously continuing to experience their model, their unconscious model.
0: These are the three major components of attachment treatment, creating a new positive stable internal working model for attachment with ideal parent figures, fostering a range of metacognitive skills and a fostering a range of collaborative behaviors and the cumulative effect of those three approaches is that a patient is likely, highly likely to get better over time.
2: That is incredible and of course that each of these pillars affects one another and Correct. it's uh, dynamic. I mean I, I think about particularly with someone who is more dismissing has basically You know, the symptom is that they've survived by learning how to deactivate that by collaboration, by entering into the left mind and creating the frame of under which that they can see why that they would want to get in touch with their body or what have you. Like they can be conscious, you know, when we're dismissing, we don't know that we are, as you know.
0: That's true. But it turns out that from my perspective, it took us 20 years to devolve this treatment because we develop specific treatments. There's a separate treatment for dismissing attachment and there's a separate treatment for anxious preoccupied attachment and there's a separate treatment for disorganized attachment and it took us a while to individualize those treatments in a way that was effective but people with dismissing attachment turn out to be the easiest to treat Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're hard to engage in treatment but once they start activating the attachment system the the sign that they're doing that is that they experience a profound longing in treatment Mm -hmm. they want to be attached but they're ashamed of it because They've associated attachment with toxic shame because of so much repeated rejections. And once they activate the longing, it's a positive symptom that they're putting the attachment system back online, and they get better, and they're very satisfying to work with once they get started. I
2: agree. And would you say that people tend to move from more dismissing to preoccupied to secure?
0: No. If they're dismissing, it's pure dismissing, then they move from dismissing to secure if they have... Disorganized attachment—they work with this missing elements first, and then they look more anxious, preoccupied, and then they get better. But what we were talking about earlier for disorganized attachment, the source of attachment is the source of fear. So what has to happen with the ideal parent figures is that they have to get it that they can actually be comforted by an attachment figure and learn to expect that soothing will come rather than more abuse or more terror.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: They have to develop a representation in that the attachment figure is actually comforting.
2: And a lot of times the therapist has to introduce that notion because it's not in their body, it's not implicitly there, so that there's this collaboration to introduce those ideas. Yeah. And then can you say a little bit about the treatment that you all developed on the anxious preoccupied side?
0: Well, the main ideological contribution to anxious preoccupation is what Mary Main calls over-involvement in the parent state of mind, that these kids were trained to be hypervigilant to the parent's state of mind and to comfort and soothe the parent, and to do that on a regular basis. So that results in a triad of problems. The first is that they Uh, are constantly having what we call an outside inner orientation. They're constantly focusing on the state of mind of the other at the expense of themselves. And as a result of that, the parent is not a soothing figure. So they end up with chronically high levels, uh, high baseline levels of anxiety that they can't comfort or soothe. So calming them uh, and having ideal uh, attachment figures who comfort and soothe them, both verbally and non-verbally, physically, is important second of all because they're so cued on the state of mind of the other or what we say they have an outside in orientation it interferes with self-development so people with disorganized attachment often have a weakly developed or poorly developed sense of self so a lot of the treatment is on attachment figures who are the champions of their own self-development and encourage exploration because people with anxious preoccupation deactivate the exploratory system so they need to have parent figures who are constantly encouraging them to explore and to have faith in their ability to explore and to discover. Through playful exploration of the environment, play is the vehicle of self-development for most children. And thirdly, uh, people with anxious preoccupation and become chronic caregivers and to reorient them to their own needs rather than constantly losing themselves in the other is uh, important. So... Impaired self-development, chronic levels of anxiety, and chronic compulsive caretaking behavior, those are the things that need to be corrected in the treatment.
2: Well, I love the specificity, and even like in doing the ideal parent protocol, and I imagine that you do the AAI for folks that you're working with, is that right? Or
0: Well, I trained in the AAI and got certified, and it. it took two years. It's a long process, but yes. I've done uh, over a thousand of them now, and... Uh, we have a pretty good sense of how to apply it to clinical populations. Mary Main was a genius when she developed the AAI, but mostly she normed it with University of California, Berkeley graduate students. So she didn't use it in clinical populations. Probably the group other than myself that's used it the most in clinical populations is Howard Steele and Merriam Steele and Valerie Sinison at Tavistock. So, for example, I have about 60 AAIs that I collected on people with dissociative identity disorder, and 95% of them have disorganized attachment. And Howard Steele and Valerie Sidison have a similar observation that they made at Tavistock with on the dissociative disorders unit that they give the AAI to, and most of them have disorganized attachment.
1: Yes.
0: So we've come to appreciate the central role of disorganized attachment in the ideology of dissociative identity disorder. And if you treat them not for trauma processing, but for treating the disorganized attachment, they get better in about two years.
2: What's so exciting about this and getting this out more widely is it is so hopeful. Do you have thoughts about Patricia Crittenden's work? Particularly, I was thinking about the disorganization and how that she sees that she has it's not a new model, but it's a model that Americans are less familiar with. And Well,
0: the context of that model is that uh, when Mary Ainsworth was doing her live observational studies of parents and children in interaction in a standardized setting, which she called the strange situation paradigm, she discovered three subtypes, uh, kids that were secure, and they showed both healthy exploratory and healthy attachment behavior. Kids who were what was called ambivalent or resistant, who had inhibited exploratory behavior and clingy attachment behavior. And the third were kids who had avoidant or dismissing attachment, and they deactivated the attachment system and uh, over-exaggerated the exploratory system. Then there was about 12% of kids who weren't easy to classify in those cookie-cutter categories. And about a decade later, Mary Main asked to look at Mary Ainsworth's data, and discovered that uh, a fourth category called disorganized attachment that turned out if you look at the studies uh, done on giving the adult attachment interview to inpatient population psychiatric inpatient populations that most of the people who have major psychiatric diagnoses that require inpatient hospitalization have disorganized attachment so it's the main risk factor for adult mental health problems. Then there was a debate that ensued between Crittenden and Maine about how one defines disorganized attachment, whether disorganized attachment is has an implicit organization to it or whether it's just disorganized. And Pat Crittenden's work is important for clinicians. It's a much more broad-based model that looks at things such as hyperarousal and its effect on disrupting attachment and uh, sexual behavior and aggressive behavior and it has a greater appeal to clinicians. The The problem that I have with the Crittenden model is that it has so many categories. Yes. Uh, that, so it's uh, very it,
2: complex. It's,
0: it's, it's complex and it's harder to teach people and it's harder to get high reliabilities. I'm more of a traditionalist. I learned the AAI and Use the more four basic or five basic categories, which are secure, dismissing, anxious, preoccupied, disorganized, and uh, unresolved uh, status for loss or abuse.
2: Right. And you, ha- you haven't said much about unresolved. What are your thoughts about treatment related to patients with unresolved attachment with the U?
0: There are two types of disorganization on the adult attachment interview. There are people who are disorganized across the interview and they have disorganized attachment or what in AI terms is called, can't classify, it means they have contradictory attachment styles. And the whole topic of attachment uh, gets them disorganized. Then there are people who have situation specific disorganization. They will show disorganization around being interviewed around a certain loss, uh, say the loss of a mother or loss of a father around a certain abuse theme, but not other abuse themes. So they show general organization around the interview, but around certain topics they get disorganized. And there, if they have a general good organization and disorganization around a specific loss or trauma, then you can do short-term processing of that trauma or that loss in a way that they don't get more disorganized. They don't show the price they pay is lack of coherence of mind. So short-term processing uh, from a cognitive behavioral point of view of that trauma, some sort of exposure-based model to the traumatization, works very effectively. But if you try and introduce that same treatment to somebody with disorganized attachment, they would get more disorganized, or the price they'd pay for the exposure-based treatment would be increased disorganization or low, low coherence of mind.
2: Well, what you're saying is so important because people get very confused because all the different labels and terms and, you know, unresolved and disorganization and, you know, who means what. And I I do think that Crididin has really, for clinicians specifically, it's been very, very valuable. I think the assessment part is hard to access. And most clinicians, and again, this is, I'm thinking, our audience is going to be a lot of therapists, but also just people in the world that are interested in attachment and in healing and growing and being good parents and partners. So this distinction that you're making within this one category is really tremendous.
0: But the studies do show that if you, Marlene Cloider, for example, has a study that if you take uh, women with a history of sexual abuse and you give them the AAI and you score them up in terms of whether they have unresolved or resolved status for their childhood sexual abuse. The ones who have unresolved status are significantly more likely to raise a kid who has insecure attachment and the ones that have resolved status have likely to raise kids with secure attachment. But then in the replication of that study, she took women who had unresolved status and gave them 10 to 12 sessions of treatment for their childhood sexual abuse, and they were significantly more likely to raise kids who had secure status. So if you treat the trauma, it uh, affects the next generations. You don't pass the trauma down to generations, and that's terribly important.
2: Right, because that unresolved status, you do fall through the floor. You do lose coherence when that experience is activated, and it's not necessarily clear why that happens. Like, for example, when the child becomes the age of the child you were or what have you. But what I love about this is, you're really talking about growing earned security, which we all love, <laughs> we all strive for, and that these very very specific treatment models that can get you there is you know much more quickly than what we have known to be true historically.
0: Yeah, it's not enough to just process trauma; that you have to look at who you're processing it in. And-
2: right, and be and and apply very. Specific techniques based on your understanding of what their internal models are and their history and their and their um, attachment status.
0: And sometimes other things, too. For example, we found that if you apply phase oriented trauma treatment to those with simple trauma, that is cumulative trauma, but not complicated by a major dissociative or personality disorder or multiple addictions, then even under those conditions, sometimes the traumatization is, treatment is very effective, uh, just processing exposure to the memories and integrating the memories and feelings about the trauma. But there's certain subgroups that it doesn't work for, about one out of 10 or one out of 20 victims of sadistic sexual child abuse, rather than what you see in a pedophile. And those are completely different situations, A pedophile minimizes his sexual abuse acts on the victim. So to have the abuse acknowledged by the therapist and to process it and to integrate it makes sense. But sadistic sexual abuse isn't about sex. It's about power and domination. So sadistic sexual abuse is often accompanied by verbal degradation, assertion of power, mind games, and sometimes infliction of physical harm and pain and it's not about sex it's about power and domination so what happens when you try and do phase oriented trauma treatment with the victims of sadistic abuse is that you start with all the stabilization stuff and the treatment goes fine for a while and then it stops working and what happens is that To be known is to be abused because sadistic offenders pride themselves in knowing the mind of the victim and that's how they get power over the victim. So you can see the impossible dilemma in treatment that to be known is to be controlled. So rather than trauma processing, what we found works for victims of sadistic abuse is good old psychodynamic treatment where you play the treatment off the here and now transference. You, you say to the patient explicitly, you have a dilemma here. If I know you, then you feel I'm going to control you. And you talk about that explicitly you know, over and over again and work it through in the transference and it, and it works. But if you try and process the memories, they get more and more distant from treatment and it doesn't work.
2: So again, this is just such great fine-tuning, and I know exactly what you mean related to the difference and how the, the security in the treatment becomes a threat in and of itself. Now, you're saying the good old psychodynamic treatment, Are you, would you also say, you know, dealing with the attachment, not the trauma, uh, basically what you were saying at the beginning of the episode?
0: You're dealing with how the, the trauma is manifesting and played out in transference illusions and in the treatment itself rather than processing memories. It's, in other words, the the trauma is reenacted in the transference, so you're dealing with dissociative reenactments.
2: Right, right. But you're specifying that that's going to still be a little bit different than treating the attachment first.
0: Correct. Yes, it's quite okay. different.
2: Yep, yep, yep. Well, there are so many nuggets in this already. This will be a recording I'm sure that people will go back and re-listen to. People that are interested in hearing more from you or reaching you, I know that you are working on a project to get this material out further. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the attachment project?
0: Well, it's something I'm doing with a businessman from Australia whose name is Jock Gordon, and we're trying to take all of what we've done in our attachment project research on treatment and assessment and treatment for the last 20 years and make it accessible to a general population to develop online accessible approaches that will treat people who are dating who have insecure attachment and one of the three forms, dismissing, preoccupied, disorganized attachment, uh, people who are in a stable relationship but have difficulty in that relationship because of attachment themes. Or parents who are not providing the right atmosphere of secure attachment to their kids who want to learn how to do it better. So we're trying to make the wisdom of this 20 years of developing these treatments available to a general population around dating themes, around secure adult intimacy, and around uh, parents so we don't pass these things down to the future generations.
2: And if people were interested in that, how would they find you?
0: We're trying to make everything available on uh, theattachmentproject.com. We started with attachment training and trying to make that accessible. But for 27 years, I ran a continuing education organization and that's what I've done at Harvard Medical School for the last 38 years. Uh, for the last 30 years I've worked in continued education. And what it means is my job is to read all the outcome studies and to update the standard of care in almost every psychiatric diagnosis. So we have pretty effective treatments now for the treatment of anxiety disorders of all sorts, for depression and bipolar disease, uh, for conversion disorders, uh, for somatoform disorders and all of these are we're going to try and film the training of those and make them available to both the lay audience and the clinical audience who can get ceu credits for them i've been in this field for about 50 years and i'm trying to at this age think about what we want to pass on to the next generation so they leave behind the knowledge that i've collected over this time
2: that is incredible. And we are going to help you do that. So again, uh, attachmentproject.com, but be sure to go to our show notes so that you can get the link for some special offers through there. So, and thank you for providing that for our audience. Thank you so much. I talk about light bulbs over one's heads. I've gotten several of those today and I know that our listeners have as well.
0: It's been a pleasure to do this. I'd happy to come back.
2: Thank you
1: so much, Dr. Brown, for being on the show, and we hope you all enjoyed it. Wow, he has a great wealth of information, doesn't he? So let's remind you again that if you're interested in Dr. Brown's work, please check out the Attachment Project. So you go to attachmentproject.com, and there you will uh, be able to sign up for his comprehensive training, Therapists can receive eight hours of CEUs, or if you're a non-therapist, you can just get more. There's all sorts of things there at the project that you can sign up for. And if you do put in a the discount code UNCENSORED, you'll get a 10% discount for any courses you sign up. So take advantage of that. I think it'll be a great wealth of information. And also wanted to remind you, if you are looking for more in-depth work from Therapists Uncensored, we have become Patreon members and we would love for you to join, so check it out. It will give you both, depending on what you sign up for, more in-depth content, and even as little as $1 a month would really give us support, but you could also go a little bit further, get more in-depth content, more access to us, and in all three accounts, Provide increase ability for us to continue to provide you with fresh content and to provide others who might not otherwise get it. So we would appreciate your support. All right. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you around the bin. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.